did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents a day? Every two weeks. Every two weeks, you got 70 cents. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. These are real stories. When someone makes a call and says, we have a bed for you, we don't have a home for you, we have a bed for you. Coming February 2022. Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Whack a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. So hooray for that. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to welcome you to an encore episode. As part of what has turned out to be our tech month, we are going to be re-releasing one of our favorite episodes, which is all about conflict minerals, which was hard to talk about, but it's also a fascinating topic. Yeah. And one of the things that I liked about this episode was we talked about the movement to try to raise awareness for conflict minerals. So even though the topic itself is a little depressing... (laughs) We talk about it from the angle of the people that were trying to make a difference. And, you know, we sort of evaluate to what extent they actually did. I loved this episode. I love talking about tech. It's one of my favorite subjects. And I know that you guys will enjoy it as well. So without further ado, here is our beautiful episode on Conflict Minerals. So Kyla, had you ever heard of Conflict Minerals before? Only in as much as you've talked about them before. Outside of that, (laughs) no, actually. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about what they are, um, and then what we're going to do is it's going to kind of be like that Operation Breadbasket episode from last year where we tell the story of an activist movement. So, Ooh, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the Enough Project and their Conflict Minerals campaign. So my first question that I've got written down is what are Conflict Minerals? Um, And essentially, um, so the term Conflict Minerals, it was a label that activists created, and it was... The purpose was to basically describe the role that four specific minerals played in the ongoing conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, So do you know generally where the, I'm going to call them the DR Congo or Congo, do you know basically where it is? Yes, I know that it's in Africa, kind of in the middle, and I think I could point it out on a map. It's big. It's big. Yeah. It's like the second biggest country in Africa um, behind Algeria, I think. So very big African country. It has, we'll talk not that much about the history of the conflict there, but basically the conflict goes back to colonialism as probably surprise nobody, but there's also some, some spillovers from other places in the region. um, So it makes it really complicated to deal with. We'll talk a little bit more about it though. So conflict minerals is specifically meant to apply to minerals that are being used to propagate the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, And it includes four different minerals. Um, So tin, 
tungsten, tantalum, and gold. Um, so sometimes it's called the three TGs, just because otherwise that'd be a huge mouthful. And it not only includes um, tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, but also the minerals that are derivatives of those. Um, so um, you might hear have heard of cassiterite, wolframite, and coltan. Um, a lot of people will have heard of coltan if they've heard about conflict minerals. All right. Um, so 3TG minerals or the conflict minerals, um, they're present in a lot of products, and that does include consumer electronics. So they're in our laptops, our smartphones, gaming consoles, tablets. But they're also in a bunch of other things like cars, airplanes, medical devices, lighting, and jewelry. So the decision, um, we'll talk a little bit about the decision to focus on consumer electronics, but it's not as though these things are only found in your smartphone. It's just that that's what activists chose to target because Apple's a little bit more brand sensitive than like some of the jewelry companies. Democratic Republic of the Congo has a really long and complicated history, and I won't be able to do it justice, but... They were uh, colonized by Belgium, um, and eventually there was a struggle for independence. There was a crisis that happened after that. Um, I think, has Beyond, Beyond the Bastards done an episode on Patrice Lumumba? I can't remember. I'm also like two months behind on Behind the Bastards. <laughs> I, 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 hope that, I hope so. L correct us, listeners, if you know. <laughs> we can link to that. I feel like I remember him being mentioned in some context, but he was essentially like a socialist leader that um, he was arguably like a really bright um, hope for the future of um, the Congo, but uh, a combination of like colonialism and anti-communism and uh, because there are so many regions in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, one of the wealthier regions was trying to sort of revolt. Um, he ends up getting assassinated. Then you end up with uh, Mobutu Seiseko. Um, so people might have heard of that name before. He was a pretty bad despot for many years. Um, and uh, he ends up getting deposed um, in the first Congolese war by Laurent Kabila. And then the second Congolese war happens. Uh, and I think he stays in power for quite a while. Um, but then um, he's succeeded by Joseph Kabila, who I think is his son, but listeners can correct me on that. But all the point being, there's like, a series of leadership changes that happen throughout the Democratic Republic of the Congo. There's a series of internal conflicts that happen basically from the start of independence and even before that in the conflict for independence. It's hard to delineate what is a conflict that goes on. And one thing that we like we haven't mentioned even yet is the Rwandan genocide because Rwanda is like right next to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so when we're talking about conflict minerals, the genocide in Rwanda is really important um, because a lot of the, the issues with conflict happen sort of on that eastern border with Rwanda. And a lot of it is sort of like um, spillover from people fleeing after the massacres. The Second Congolese War, it formally ends in 2002. But basically what happens after that is you have... Um, a series of like militias and rebel groups um, that are controlling particular parts of the territory. So the state's not able to reach every part of the country. And the Democratic Republic of the Congo is also sort of really mineral uh, rich. And particularly in the eastern regions of the Congo, there are a lot of rebel groups that have a huge incentive to hang on to territory in order to um, sort of extract minerals to make money. So it becomes... The war is formally ended, but there's still this conflict going on. And in part, it's being sort of exacerbated by this mineral wealth. 
And so there are a couple of regions that you might have heard of that are mostly associated with this. So Ituri, North Kivu, and South Kivu, those are the eastern provinces that have a lot of the like conflict minerals, um, as we say. The, the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's very complicated. Um, and it's also a really big, um, really big conflict. So there was a lot of debate about the numbers, but as many as 5.4 million people have died in um, conflict in the DR Congo since 1996. So that's a lot. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that much. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons that it's called um, like Africa's World War sometimes. Um, and it's sort of the because it's really complicated. Like I'm sure listeners are like, Kristen, you just said so many nouns. Like I don't. I don't understand what just happened there. And that's partially like me explaining it badly, I'm sure. But also it's so complicated that like journalists have a really difficult time explaining it to um, the conflict to Western audiences because there are so many different actors and the actors change all the time. So, but it is a really important conflict. um, And it's one that has seen like a lot of internal displacement, obviously a lot of deaths, that 5.4 million death toll is pretty significant. And also there's a high um, level of sexual violence that has occurred throughout the, like the situation. So people may have heard of the Congo associated with that. But conflict minerals are essentially, they're linked to the perpetuation of the conflict. So the idea is you've got this conflict that can't really end. It's, it's difficult to get parties to come to the table because you can make a lot of money if you're a rebel group, or even if you're like part of um, the Congolese government um, by just gathering minerals. And so if you can get people to work at the mine, and some in some cases there's associations with forced labor as well, which we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, you know, you can run a pretty big profit margin and it gives you a pretty low incentive to come to the, the bargaining table to actually get um, an enduring piece, right? So can I make an assumption then that the activist groups are basically pushing companies to buy their minerals from somewhere else? Or what happens if everyone just stops supporting that industry? Wouldn't that solve it? Well, yes and no. Um, So this is, um, we'll talk about this a little more when we talk about the actual campaign. It's tricky um, because you really wouldn't want to get all conflict minerals out of or all um, mineral revenue out of the region because there are some non-conflict linked mines that exist in the DR Congo and also in neighboring countries. And those are a huge source of livelihoods for people. Right. So um, you don't want to like take too wide a brush by um, just stopping companies from purchasing minerals from the DR Congo or even from that like broader region in Africa, that would, that would be really bad for development. So um, the conflict minerals campaign takes a little bit more of a nuanced approach where they're, they're looking at, on one hand, promoting conflict-free minerals from the region, and on the other hand, um, getting companies to make sure they're not buying conflict-linked minerals. But we'll talk more about that. So um, just to give you um, a stat here, um, so the three TG minerals, those conflict minerals, tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold, um, they're not exclusive to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, They're mined in a bunch of other places, and Australia is a really big producer, for example. And they're actually like much larger producers. But the reason conflict minerals matter as an issue is that um, the stat might be a few years old because there has been a lot of progress. But um, an estimated 95% of revenue for armed groups operating in the Congo comes from the conflict minerals trade. Um, and so it's a really important contributor to the conflict. 
Again, it helps to sustain the operation of armed groups, um, and it helps to create an incentive for these groups to avoid peace and to retain control over their like parcels of land that they have. So those 3TG minerals are mainly extracted from the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and there many mines are controlled by paramilitary groups. So that sort of is why there's the focus on that, that area. So here's basically how it works. So these minerals, um, they get extracted in mines. They're usually artisanal and small-scale mines, so they're not like huge strip mining operations. You know, individual miners are pulling stuff out of the ground. And those minerals get extracted by local laborers, um, and they're often illegally taxed. They can be otherwise exploited by rebel groups that control the mines, um, in the case of conflict minerals. And then uh, those minerals are sold at local trading houses. So they go to sort of like a village nearby. Um, it gets sold to a trading house and all the minerals get mixed together, which makes it really hard to trace. Then they get sold again to exporters. So they go to a whole other place. And those exporters sell the minerals to smelters and refiners that process the minerals, um, which are then sort of what big electronics companies will take and use to make their products. It was the same problem that uh, we found with coffee and probably yeah. very similar to seafood. Like if everything's going to the same place and getting mixed together, how are buyers supposed to know where they're buying from? Yeah, it makes it really complicated. So even um, this is part of the pushback that the campaign gets, but even an electronics company that would want to deal with conflict minerals, you know, there are challenges to even knowing where you're sourcing from. So you have to do your homework a little bit. So conflict minerals are a really tough problem to solve because they involve complex supply chains. So I just explained how those trading house systems worked and also because they cross multiple borders. So in some cases, you might have um, a mineral that's uh, taken out of the ground in Congo, but that, that gets um, traded through to Rwanda and then exported. And without traceability, like a company might think, oh, I'm buying from Rwanda, they're conflict free. I'm fine, but really they're not necessarily, right? Because of all this complexity, it makes it really hard to, to deal with. Um, and it also means that if you're trying to deal with the problem of conflict minerals, it's just as much about influencing the mineral smelters in, you know, say China or some other country, as it is about dealing with the mines themselves in the Congo. And it's also about dealing with like these big multinational, largely American headquartered um, electronics companies. So you have to get everybody on board in order to change the problem. And yeah, as I mentioned, that cross-border smuggling is another reason that it's tough because the Congolese government doesn't really have control over the full territory. That has changed a little bit recently, but um, it has been one of the reasons that conflict minerals are such an endemic problem. So it can be really hard to know if your minerals are truly coming from the Congo. And if so, are they coming from a paramilitary mine or a conflict-free mine? can be tough to tell. And then the last one is something that um, you alluded to with your question, Kyla. Um, it's the importance of mining for local economies. That's another layer of complexity here. So if we simply stop to buy those 3TG minerals from the Congo and from surrounding areas, it wouldn't solve um, the economic challenges, but it might actually worsen those development outcomes. So you know, trying to balance those values is tricky. But should we maybe talk about the movement itself? <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't sound like I'm like, wow, I can't think of a solution. I'm glad that you told me at the beginning of this episode that there's an activist group we're going to talk about that's like targeting this because it sounds 
I mean, you've talked about this before, just between us. And I was like, holy shit, I'm overwhelmed thinking about this. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Enough Projects campaign, but I want to talk a little bit about um, an earlier campaign that predates Enough. I, I won't talk about that too much. But Enough didn't invent the issue of co conflict minerals. And even when they were active, there are other groups like Human Rights Watch that are also right in there. But conflict minerals, it really, um, the movement starts in the t early 2000s. Um, and basically, at the time, you have um, war in the Congo that's ongoing, getting some attention in the media. And at the time, the focus was explicitly on coltan. And the reason for that is basically because we all started using cell phones around the early 2000s. Um, and so the price of coltan, which is um, an important element of cell phones, it skyrocketed. So suddenly this mineral that wasn't worth all that much becomes worth quite a lot. And there's sort of linkages to those rebel groups. So it was sort of seen as a leverage point that you could have. And so the increased price of coltan, um, it... It, it sort of um, creates this snowball effect where it leads to more um, rebel-controlled mines because the price is so much higher. So early conflict minerals activism really focuses on that. And it also focuses on another element that we won't talk about here, but um, the destruction of gorilla habitats caused by these mining operations. So that's another element. These, these mines are environmentally destructive as well. And uh, in 2003, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio um, quite infamously called for a boycott on what he called blood coltan, which we'll have to do. Um, we'll have to do an episode on the Kimberly process and blood diamonds, but it was sort of playing off the blood diamonds idea. Was he was he in a movie called Blood Diamond? Was that him? Was it because I of this? I think he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, and I just double checked. And Blood Diamond is a 2006 action drama film starring Leonardo DiCaprio. So cool. I guess, yeah, it's just a topic that he became really interested in for some reason. That's a fun fact. Yeah. So fun fact, Leonardo DiCaprio, early conflict minerals movement. All right. So the conflict minerals campaign starts to ramp up in 2009 with a report that Global Witness wrote um, and they wrote it to 200 companies that they found had zero processes in place to stop conflict minerals in their supply chain. At the time, consumer awareness was extremely low. Um, I would even say today, not a lot of people know about conflict minerals in the same way that we would know about people might have heard of like blood diamonds or people hear the word fast fashion and understand what that means. Um, so there was a big uphill battle for um, these campaigns to get people to understand what conflict minerals are and to pressure companies to do something about it. So we're going to talk about the Enough Project, which is one of the major actors that was, um, they're still an active NGO, um, but they now have ended their conflict minerals campaign. And I'll talk a little bit about why that is at the end. Is it because they succeeded? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's not like an unmitigated success, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit. They did achieve some things. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the Enough Project's conflict minerals campaign. I'll talk about how it worked. I'll talk about what the pressure tools are they used, and I'll talk about what it accomplished. And we can sort of debate whether it really accomplished its goals or not, once I've told you the story. But I want to highlight, um, I think this is a really interesting story for a couple of reasons. Um, so first, it shows how consumer pressure and public policy advocacy are actually really closely connected. 
people often separate them and they think if you're for ethical consumption, then you're not for political solutions. But this case really shows that you can use them together um, and that they're inherently complementary. I like this case also because it's sort of a good model for how activists should pressure corporations to address really complicated problems that arise in today's world of globalization. And also because it highlights the importance of combining shame with praise in order to get companies to change their behavior. And personally, I think it worked pretty well. We can debate whether you agree. I just want to do another highlight about Operation Breadbasket because I think these are linked somewhat. So Kyla, I don't know if you remember this because it was like a year ago, but when we were talking about um, Operation Breadbasket, which was a boycott campaign to increase black employment in American cities that happened in the 60s. So we, we kind of ended that episode reflecting on how a lot of the conditions that happened to make it successful um, really aren't possible anymore. And I wanted to, to share a story of how consumer activism campaigns work in today's context. Um, so there's a lot about this story that's very different. The strategies that um, enough applies are very different. But maybe at the end, we can sort of reflect on if there are any similarities or, you know, things like that. Yeah, awesome. So a couple of quick words on the Enough Project. The Enough Project, they're basically, um, they're one of the leading organizations that campaign for an end to conflict minerals. They aren't the only one, but they're the one I'm going to talk about today. And it's a, an NGO that's based out of Washington, D.C., um, but they do employ journalists and researchers who work um, in like the local context where their focus areas are. So they've got a few regional focuses. Um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is one of them, um, but they also do work in Somalia, the Central African Republic, and um, Sudan and South Sudan. And basically, enough's, um, the way that they work is they combine research and citizen mobilization to accomplish their goal, and their goal is to counter genocide and crimes against humanity. So that's really what they're focused on. Those are good goals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would say that I, I stand by those things. <laughs> so Enough begins advocating on conflict minerals in 2009, um, and they basically start by writing letters that they co-sign with a bunch of Congolese and international NGOs, and they're addressing these letters to different consumer electronics companies. That's kind of their first opening salvo. And the letters basically called attention to conflict minerals and asked the companies about what steps, if any, they were taking to address them. Once that was started, um, Enough took on an approach where basically they were doing two, they had two sort of tracks of what they were doing. The first track is research and monitoring. So they're looking at what's going on on the ground, what are good policy solutions, um, what are companies doing. They're doing the sort of research and analysis role. Um, and as well, they're supporting grassroots activists to apply direct consumer pressure. So you can see this like in contrast to Operation Breadbasket, where you have, um, you know, very locally um, based groups that are directly calling for boycotts and carrying them out themselves. Enough isn't actually calling for a boycott and they're not um, they're not themselves going out and picketing, but they're working with other groups um, to sort of coordinate a movement that has a coherent message and that can apply consumer pressure. So I think it's kind of an interesting approach. How do they get the money to do this research and stuff? Like, um, were they funded by somebody? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> They're an Fair NGO. Enough. They probably get a combination of like donations and grants, but... That's cool. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I was just curious. Yeah. 
Enough starts by looking at basically like site visits. They do stakeholder interviews. So they're trying to get like a picture of what's going on on the ground. They're trying to establish their credibility as experts in conflict minerals. And they also set a clear advocacy direction. So there are three things that they're calling for when they're, when they're talking about conflict minerals. So trace, audit, and certify. I'll talk a little bit more about what that means, but they establish this very clear headline of this is what companies should do, and that can guide the entire movement, and that's based on the research that they're doing. In the sort of research bucket, they also they identify under those like three things, trace, audit, certify, they identify specific changes um, that activists can advocate for. Um, and so they're research, drawing on their research to constantly modify these recommendations to have it match um, what unfolding practice is because companies are starting to change as the, the movement happens. So then that second tactic is support for grassroots activists. So alongside their, that monitoring role, Enough has supported other activist organizations to mobilize on conflict minerals. They do that in part um, by supporting activists uh, within Congo but also activists that are in um, wealthy Western countries that can apply consumer pressure to the companies that they're targeting, in this case, electronics companies. So some of that was like coordination support. They worked a lot with student groups. Um, who I don't know if people have been in student groups at universities, but they are often very um, disorganized. <laughs> and so <laughs> enough was uh, they had a little bit more of sort of like a an infrastructure that they could help to coordinate these campaigns from students that had a lot of like energy and wanted to to carry out activism on conflict minerals. They just needed a little bit more guidance. <laughs> little guidance. Um, it also, I think, just helps to have like if you have key messages, you don't somebody doesn't have to write that, and it's coherent, so you're not fighting amongst one another, which is really useful. They were sort of co coordinating, in some cases, building the capacity of these organizations. And they're also amplifying activist messages by bringing it to like media to make sure that um, these issues are getting covered. And they're also doing awareness raising themselves. So in their mobilization efforts, Enough basically sought to encourage a whole bunch of simultaneous actions that are targeted at different actor groups. So rather than having like one target and focusing the pressure on that, um, they're saying, okay, we, we've got some student groups, they're trying to get conflict minerals off campus. We've got these other local groups that are trying to get cities to sign ordinances. We've got this letter writing campaign that's targeting Intel. You know, like they've got a bunch of stuff happening all the time because grassroots activists are picking their particular target. They're just guided by the overarching frame that Enough has created. Um, and their early mobilization efforts was really devoted towards consumer awareness because people really didn't know anything about conflict minerals. I thought they had some kind of, um, I don't know, I thought they were interesting ad techniques, but it's also like... <laughs> It's been enough time that I don't know if anybody would remember the references. Do you remember the Get a Mac ads? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> they did a really good riff on those. So if any listeners remember that. Um, so they do stuff like that. Sometimes it'd be a little cheeky. Oh, that's fun. I like a cheeky ad. That that's always uh, draws me a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing that's really important to know about this campaign is um, they didn't just shame every consumer electronics company. What they really did was um, they would ask all companies to move, but they would praise the companies at the sort of the front of the pack 
emphasizing that they had places to change, but to really praise the actions that they were taking. And then they'd shame the laggards at the bottom of the pack and the people in the middle, which is, I think, kind of an interesting approach to take. But it, it makes a lot of sense when you've got so many consumer electronics companies and you don't want the entire industry to just shut down and say, we can't change this thing. Because you could kind of pretty easily imagine Buck passing on something as complicated as conflict minerals, right? So they identified big electronics producers, and those were the only groups that they focused on to begin with. Um, and their strategy was basically to compare companies against one another to sort of breed that competition to get um, companies to vie for the front of the pack. They asked them basically to do three things, as I've mentioned before. So one is trace, two is audit, and three is certify. So specifically, they should trace their supply chains, which is basically just um, making sure that you know where your minerals are coming from. Conduct third-party audits, and that's really important because you want to make sure that that tracing is accurate. And then three, to purchase third-party certified conflict-free min minerals from the region. So essentially, there had been these small initiatives set up to um, produce conflict-free minerals in region and they're trying to encourage that to get off the ground and to be as successful as possible to show that like you can actually govern this complicated issue. You just need to support these initiatives. So that's basically the approach that they took. So they started, as I mentioned, by demanding that these producers pledge to trace, audit, and certify. They then uh, went through and did a ranking of these big electronics companies and looked at their progress. I won't talk too much about the ratings because I suspect it's going to be super boring, but they basically put together a bunch of criteria to basically say how far are these companies doing in meeting those trace audit certify goals that we have. And they rewarded a few companies at the top. They punished six companies by like saying that they were at the bottom. And then there's a middle tier that they kind of ignored more or less. I'm curious uh, if you would think of a company that you would think would be a leader in this, who would you think of? Um, does Fairphone make that sort of a list? So Fairphone, um, they, they're not big enough to make this list. And also they were pretty, I think they existed at the time, but like they're only in Europe and, you know, so no, they weren't on the list, but probably would be leaders. If they were. <laughs> okay, then if I recall correctly from our very first episode, Intel did surprisingly well on something like this, but I don't remember what exactly it was, but I'm going to go Intel. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Um, HP and Intel were at the very beginning sort of like the big leaders. And then you had um, Motorola, Nokia, Microsoft, and Dell also in that top category. Well, it's easy for Motorola and Nokia to do well. Well, they make what, like 12 phones a year? <laughs> I mean, this was like 2011, so like they were a little <laughs> bit more in the game at the time. But I hear your I hear your criticism. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and some of the the laggards were um, Nintendo, Canon, Panasonic, and SanDisk. I don't even know what SanDisk produces, but they're in the bottom. SanDisk <laughs> is a memory company. They make like flashcards and RAM and stuff like that. <laughs> There you go. It's so useful to have a former computer salesperson on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, the, the rankings were, um, they were interesting because they, um, they provided a basis on which consumers could say, oh, I'm going to go with this company versus this company because they're doing better. 
They allowed companies that were at the top to really like brag about it in their statements, which I think has an interesting effect of reinforcing that you should be doing something because they're saying you should be doing something. And then you can point to what they said a year ago, like, oh, but you said conflict minerals are important and now we don't think you're doing good enough. It's like a dynamic that doesn't exist if you don't have these rankings. Uh, that's basically what the, the role of the report was to do. Um, and it it was accompanied by specific suggestions on how firms could improve, um, which allowed activists um, points where they could, you know, sort of take specific actions. Enough then released a second set of rankings in 2012. It was pretty similar. Um, there was some movement. I won't talk too much about this. Um, I find it very interesting, but probably the listeners won't. One of the sort of notable things is that Intel and HP are still like doing pretty well in the rankings and they're sort of lauded as standing ahead of the pack and that there are also some companies that are really sort of improving one of those is blackberry which again (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how they're doing today (laughs) yeah in 2012 maybe uh, it was more important now i don't know how many phones they produce so like the rankings weren't the only thing they're doing they're also they've got a bunch of other communications that are happening but these are sort of like the big pieces of their research. Um, and they did one more in 2017. And that one included the jewelry industry because they started to shift eventually. They sort of saw that consumer electronics companies are getting on board for the most part. There's at least a lot of movement happening. And at the same time, you've got a lot of jewelry companies, particularly there's super little progress happening in gold. And who uses a lot of gold in products that like consumers recognize? You know, jewelry makers. The 3TGs are also in things like airplanes, but as a consumer, I have no control over what's an, what my airplane's made of, you know. I have very few choices with airlines, let alone like the components of my airplane, you know. Yeah, especially in Canada. Maybe maybe European <laughs> listeners can shop a little bit more, but... Yeah, maybe they should have targeted Ryanair. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so they focus on the jewelry industry, which is doing basically nothing at the time, and that's one of the big findings of the report. One notable change that happens, um, so I don't want to give people the impression, like I hadn't talked about Apple before, but they were in the middle of the pack, and they actually make a huge amount of progress over this time, and they and Google overtake HP and Intel as the leaders in conflict minerals in these rankings. So maybe not ethical in all realms, but they did on this issue take a lot of action in a fairly short period of time. Well, that's kind of nice considering they're probably two of the biggest buyers of those products. Yeah, and um, Apple did quite a lot to trace its supply chain. Um, on our research notes, I just um, I posted the entirety of an academic paper I wrote on this. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a whole bunch on what specifically Apple did. If that's your jam, you can look at that. Well, let's talk a little bit more about consumer pressure because that's more fun. So consumer pressure, it was a key element of Enough's campaign. So many of their communications were focused on consumer pressure and they're sort of dealing with these grassroots All right, so one example of how they're using consumer pressure in communications um, is um, one of the Enough spokespeople said, quote, Apple is claiming that their products don't contain conflict minerals because their suppliers say so. People are saying that's not good enough. That's why there's this grassroots movement so that we as consumers can choose to buy conflict-free. So this is like a focus of the campaign that they're going through. And they're really targeting like specific companies in different communications. 
Um, they also asked um, consumers to tell industry leaders um, to act on conflict minerals. They were not only supporting actually organized campaigns, but they're also saying like you as a consumer, you should also be writing your company. I'll talk a little bit more about consumer mobilization through the campaigns, though. One of the big ones was Raising Hope for Congo. And they had uh, a number of different partners, um, but two of the tracks, I think I had mentioned these briefly, they're looking at trying to get conflict-free pledges at organizations that buy a lot of electronics. Um, The idea being, you know, universities have to have a whole lot of computers. You know, municipal governments have to have a whole lot of computers. If you can get them to make a conflict-free pledge, that's going to be effective in maybe incentivizing companies um, to see that their bottom line's affected by this, right? Because you get this movement where it becomes normal is the ideal. Um, you know, it becomes normal for universities or cities to buy only conflict-free minerals and to demand that from their companies. So that's one of the things that they do is they support organizations to get these, these uh, motions passed. And it was fairly successful. Um, there were um, so within cities, there's a smaller number. Um, there were seven conflict-free re- uh, resolutions passed in American cities, um, and uh, California and Maryland also passed um, conflict-free resolutions. So, California, that's a big get. Uh, <laughs> um, and then it's a little bit more successful, as you might imagine, at universities. So there were conflict-free campus resolutions that passed at 27 universities, and those were mostly in American cities because it's an American movement for the most part. Activists have also circulated on online petitions based on the messaging that Enough puts out. Um, so there's a change.org petition that went out that was fairly um, successful on that, asking Apple to make a conflict-free product that sources minerals from the Congo. So that'll just give you an example of the kinds of consumer oppression movements that are happening. Um, in Canada, they worked with um, Students Taking Action Now, Darfur, um, on a conflict minerals campaign as well. So they're also working specifically with existing organizations to focus on conflict minerals. Another thing that Enough focused on, which I think is really interesting for this case, um, is creating governance systems. So as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the big problems with conflict minerals is that you don't have really, like you don't have state control over the areas where this is happening, right? It's, there are pockets of land that are controlled by different militias um, and uh, and rebel groups. And that's where a lot of the problems come from. And it's really hard to govern that, um, you know, because there's not, there's not state governance. And also because of how the like global economy works, even if you had that state governance, like we know that it's hard to monitor ethics over borders. So you have kind of this dual governance challenge that's happening. And also there's a lot of cross-border smuggling, so it makes it even, there's like a third layer where it's really difficult to govern these problems. To address these problems, Enough knew that it had to do better than just telling companies not to buy from the Congo. So what it needed to do essentially was to pressure companies to actively participate in creating conflict-free governing systems to support those like conflict-free minerals coming from the Great Lakes region of Africa, which is where the Congo is. Otherwise, a conflict-free movement could do real economic harm to Congolese people, right? You wouldn't want to just have the solution be, okay, no coal town from Africa, instead we only buy from Australia. Like, that's a problem. That's not an ideal response, you know? (laughs) That could hurt development in the region. So um, Enough really used that sort of praise function, where they're praising companies for doing well, to promote company engagement in initiatives to 
to encourage in-region conflict-free minerals. So it criticized the failings of these initiatives because they definitely weren't perfect, but they also um, were encouraging companies to participate and to actively sort of like be a buyer for them. There are a few different conflict-free um, certification schemes. Um, I'll just mention them briefly. One is the conflict-free sourcing initiative. They have they're basically a group that creates systems for um, downstream producers. So that's like end of use. So like um, the electronics companies can influence suppliers to be conflict-free. So they have an initiative called Conflict-Free Smelters, which publishes a list of smelters. They're basically like the group that like a smelter like is part of the minerals refining process. And so they'll publish a list of smelters that are compliant with conflict-free sourcing rules. So if you're an electronics company, you can buy from that. There's also a group called ITSKI, um, which is a certification on the other end from like the mining side that was created by the Tin Industry Association. And it initially was just for tin and it was certifying conflict-free tin. But now it focuses on also tantalum and tungsten um, and they, they promote conflict-free uh, mines in the region and certify them. And then there's also a third initiative that's coming. Um, it's an interstate um, group that's coming out of the Great Lakes region of Africa called the ICGLR. And they started a conflict-free mineral certification, you know, that's sort of built by the region, which I think is pretty that's cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, I like that one the best. <laughs> I don't know anything about these, but I like the sound of that one the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got to love like local empowerment for sure. So um, none of these initiatives were perfect. Some of them had some pretty serious flaws and hopefully are, those are being fixed. But enough encouraged participation while at the same time sort of pushing for those problems to get fixed. It was sort of like a support, but also punch softly approach. And enough also asked companies to support capacity building initiatives in the region, because sometimes like we've talked about this on other podcasts, but it can be difficult to certify minerals because or certify anything really, because like there's there's a certain cost to that, right? If you're a small producer you have to pay the costs of the audit. That's usually something that the producer takes on themselves. It also means that you might have to like increase your documentation. Like it just it is expensive, even if it's a good thing to do. So one of the ways that you can sort of deal with those barriers is to have a capacity building initiative that will pay for the cost of the audits and things like that. So enough also ask companies to participate in those kinds of capacity building initiatives. And there were a bunch of those that started up as well. Is it just my my negativity here, but would it not also maybe stop the bribing of auditors? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to have auditors being bribed. That's a whole, we should maybe do an episode on, no, that would be a really boring episode. <laughs> Auditing is <laughs> such bribery. an interesting topic. Um, and it's really hard to like, to take out those incentives. And that happens, like across all eco labels there, you have to deal with these kinds of challenges, and some are better at it than others. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to get into that right now. I'm just listening to this and it's like, I'm like, oh, it's expensive to do all this auditing and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you're already spending that money and you don't want to take forced labor out of your system or you want people to think you're a conflict free mind when you're not at all, it's like, OK, well, I'll just pay this auditor to label me as conflict free. Easy. Yeah, especially since like a lot of the auditors, um, they're very specialized in their industry. So that can be a risk too, right? They might have worked at that company previously or something like that. 
But anyway, that's a whole other topic. (laughs) (laughs) So the last and I think really important pillar of the Enough's campaign was um, the Enough Project's campaign is public policy. So as it was taking on this sort of indirect consumer pressure campaign where they're researching and mobilizing, Enough is also involved in public politics at a bunch of different levels. So domestically, Enough advocated for conflict minerals legislation in the United States, primarily in the United States. They also did some in Canada and Europe. Talk about those a little more. They also advocated for the American government to use their foreign policy tools, such as development funding, to address the problem of conflict minerals. So put that on development agendas. They also participated in processes internationally. Um, I won't go into these too much, but I had mentioned the ICGLR. um, So that's an interstate group of different um, African countries in the Great Lakes region. The United Nations um, has a bunch of stuff on conflict minerals and also the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. They have a whole thing about conflict minerals due diligence. It is extremely boring reading, but I'm glad that they're doing the work that they're doing. (laughs) But yeah, so they were working at sort of all those international forums as well. And throughout the campaign, they're really connecting this consumer pressure to their um, public policy advocacy. And they actually do get a pretty big win. Um, Of course, not just the Enough Projects win. There are also a lot of other NGOs working on this. But when the Dodd-Frank Act gets passed, there's a little something in there for conflict minerals. Uh, Do you remember the Dodd-Frank Act? Nope. (laughs) Nope, that's fair. Not a policy wonk here. (laughs) Do you remember the Great Recession of 2008? Oh, yes, vividly. (laughs) Yeah, it's the big Obama-era law that gets passed after the recession has started. So it's Uh, the big banking regulations law, Dodd-Frank Act. So it gets passed. It's this huge piece of legislation. It's mostly aimed at the banking sector. But as is the case in all American legislation, there's some like smaller stuff that gets nibbled in there. And one of those things is the Conflict Minerals Act. It's called the Conflict Minerals Rule sometimes, Section 1502, if you are a wonk, (laughs) part of the bill that it's in. But basically, the idea um, is that the Conflict Minerals Rule, it required big companies um, that are using those 3TG minerals. So it required companies that are using those minerals to publicly report on their due diligence practices um, to the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC. So basically, if you're a company that's using the types of minerals that are typically conflict minerals or that can be conflict minerals, you have to report on whether you've done your homework to make sure they're not conflict minerals. That's what due diligence means. It's like, look into it properly. And there's a lot more behind like what the details of that of due diligence should be for different issues, but that's basically the essence. You have to do your homework and you have to publicly report to the SEC and they're going to put your report up online so people can read whether it's sufficient or not. So um, Enough um, and many other NGOs had advocated for the creation of this rule um, by lobbying officials and also, you know, making the case that it'd be a really useful law. Um, And I I think just to go back to that Operation Breadbasket example we had from last year, um, I don't know if you remember this, but um, one of the things they really struggled with was how you monitor what these companies are doing. And having them produce reports is something that they actually found quite useful. So I see one similarity here. 
that if you have mandatory reporting, that's actually super useful for activists, even though it might seem just like red tape to other people. Because it allows you, if, you're, if you have to report on what you're doing for conflict minerals and that has to be public, then an activist group can look at all of the companies and say, who's doing a better job than others, you know? Uh, so really good from an accountability perspective. Is there anything to stop companies from just lying in these reports? I mean, in theory, like, you can't lie in government disclosures, something, something rules. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much enforcement was happening, which is like, this is one of the debates on this rule. But just to talk a little bit more about um, getting it passed, they actually also asked those leading companies to publicly support the conflict minerals provision. And they would have like pressure campaigns targeted at some companies that were seen as sort of like quietly opposing it while pretending to be for getting rid of conflict minerals. Yeah, oh, classic. classic. Classic big company move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they get this um, this rule passed in the Dodd-Frank Act, um, and immediately there's this battle to ensure that this rule is actually going to get implemented because there's immediately a fight between the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the SEC over this provision and whether it should be implemented. And in the face of resistance from some major companies, Enough is like trying to call on leading electronics companies to express their support for the provision and to encourage consumer mobilization in its defense. I think Intel is one of the companies that actively sort of says, yeah, implement this rule, but I might be wrong. It was either HP or Intel, and the other one was kind of slimy about it. So. Okay. <laughs> so go to our research notes. if uh... Yeah, that one says for sure. But the, the point being that there are like companies that you might see as being leaders in the pack that are quietly opposing it. But there are also some that are truly like enough convinces them to actually publicly support the rule um, when it might have been in their financial interests not to do so. So that's not nothing. <laughs> and over this fight, the SEC receives 13,000 letters um, to adopt the conflict minerals rule. And ultimately, they decide they're going to implement it. But at the same time, they give companies quite a lot of leeway in interpreting what their reporting requirements are. And so Enough and other hum humanitarian NGOs have to like go to battle again to try to get companies to implement it the way that they want to implement it. So they articulate like what they want to see in these disclosures. You know, like they have to basically create everything to make sure that companies aren't interpreting the SEC guidelines as narrowly as they possibly can, because otherwise companies would probably have an incentive to disclose as little as possible. So the conflict minerals rule, it was a big win. Um, it has been criticized because the disclosures don't contain enough information to determine necessarily which companies are acting responsibly. There's also been criticisms on the other side for the effect that the legislation has had on mining in the Great Lakes region of Africa. So it's certainly not a perfect provision, but it was a major step forward. And it if nothing else, it creates um, this idea that companies can be made responsible for global problems in their supply chains. And so the regulation today, it remains in force, but in 2017, the SEC suspended enforcement. Yeah. Can you guess uh, who was maybe behind that? <laughs> oh, so was it a company? Uh, no. Um, well, arguably, yes, but... <laughs> what happens in 2016 in America? 
oh no, it was Donald <laughs> Trump. <laughs> oh yeah. no. So one of the claims that Trump made at the beginning of his presidency that was that he was going to get rid of this rule. He never actually did, but the SEC did suspend enforcement. So that's oh, a huge fuck setback. that guy. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? He doesn't even, does he? Why? Fuck that guy. <laughs> what was the motivation there? Just to be a dick or does he have some stake in that? Well, I mean, like, vaguely pro-business, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. What a weird thing to target. It's so specific. (laughs) Well, I think he also targeted the postal treaty. Like, he had some oddly specific gripes. But yeah, so this was a setback, but companies are still expected to file disclosures, even though it's not being enforced. Um, And at the same time, you have a couple of U.S. states, so Maryland and California again, and this time also Oregon. They have similar state regulations. So in those states, it is being enforced. (laughs) And even if it's not being enforced, there is, in theory, still a duty to um, to disclose. So that's it's not nothing, but it's a huge setback for sure. The U.S. was the first country outside of Africa to enact a law requiring the disclosure of conflict disclosure of conflict minerals due diligence. um, But they were not the last. The second one was not Canada, though. Uh, Canada has had... (laughs) We've had the legislation introduced twice, and it failed both times under the government of uh, Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Fun times. Oh, fuck that guy, too. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'll talk a little bit about what happened in Canada, just because a lot of our listeners are Canadian. Um, Basically, um, both uh, conflict minerals bills were introduced by an opposition member of parliament. Um, His name was Paul Dewar. Um, He's dead now. But uh, when bills are introduced by opposition MPs, it's like really unlikely that they're going to pass. So it's not super surprising that they failed. But it is notable effort. So starting in 2010, then MP Paul Dewar, who is um, the New Democratic Party, which is sort of the left-wing party in Canada, their foreign affairs critic, Um, He tabled a conflict minerals bill. Then there was an election, so it didn't get voted on and it had to get reintroduced. um, And then it failed in 2014. I want to make a quick note for Paul Dewar because I think he was a really good person and he died of a brain tumor in 2019. So he was a really steadfast activist for human rights. He was an advocate on things like refugee resettlement in Canada, feminism, and he was also a very kind person. So... In his deathbed message, he had this advice for people who are overwhelmed by the scale of global problems. I'll just quote it because I think it's nice. The secret is not to focus on how to solve the problem, but concentrate on what you can contribute to your country, your community, and your neighbors. I think that's a nice thought. Yeah. Yeah. So if not for uh, glioblastomas, maybe we'd have conflict minerals legislation today because he probably would have kept fighting. Oh, we still don't. So they still haven't done it. No, we still haven't. Yeah, hasn't been reintroduced since. But the European Union does have it. So oh, this is nice. You know, they're they're bigger than us anyway. So I guess if you want one of Canada and the EU to pass something, you can't have both. You'd probably prefer it to be the EU because they're more powerful. But it's the Regulation on Responsible Sourcing of Minerals, if you want to know the full title. And it just came into force in January of this year. Very exciting. But also very sad. Yeah, it took a really long time. Yeah, partially it it got passed in 2017, but legislators wanted to give companies uh, enough time to adapt to the rules, which just kind of makes sense. I guess, but four years seems like an awfully long time. It does. I agree with that. But it's in force now. And uh, 
there are a couple of interesting things about this regulation. Um, so I uh, like, like the, um, I guess this is slightly different from section 1502, but it requires companies to disclose the origin of their 3TG minerals. And unlike the American rules, the EU provision applies to minerals importers. So rather than making Apple um, specify, it's companies that are importing the minerals that have to state where they got them from. And it also classifies conflict minerals as those mined in any conflict zone or high-risk areas. So it's not just um, specific to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's anywhere where there could potentially be uh, conflict minerals. So yeah, doesn't seem like bad legislation to me. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> pretty good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just add a quick reflection on the campaign, and then maybe we can have a chat. Enough never launched a formal boycott. Instead, what they did was to steer consumers towards some electronic companies and away from others. And that practice of rewarding leaders and shaming laggards, it seems to be part of a strategy, I think, to motivate actors to continually push that frontier of action. Enough also participated in industry efforts, and at time they partnered with companies to lobby for legislative change. Their model of research and indirect activism could be another reason that they have been able to collaborate to the extent that they have with companies and government actors. So they haven't been perceived solely as um, combatants with companies. That's, I think, an interesting dynamic. Um, they've been able to collaborate with companies on governance initiatives, and that's I think so, so, so important to a complex global challenge like conflict minerals, where you have the absence of government um, at both the state and the international level, and that that's one of the primary obstacles. It's a really tricky challenge to overcome, and collaboration is probably quite necessary. I think although um, the conflict minerals movement has had its setbacks and its troubles, um, not least of which was Trump getting elected, oh, uh, establishing a collaborative dynamic it has um, resulted in, I think, pretty considerable progress since 2007. There are new modes of governance that never existed before. There are certification schemes that never existed before. There is legislation that didn't exist before. Um, and so although it's not an unambiguous success, I think there's some evidence that the link between conflict and minerals has been severed and that company pressure mattered um, a good deal to making that happen. Another thing to note um, is that Enough also encouraged the development of those in-region conflict-free certification and capacity programs. And I think that that had something to do with the criticism that the conflict minerals movement got in the early phase, um, which is that, um, you know, it was hurting African economies. So they're trying to combat that. And I think they did a pretty good job. I do think as well that those national and international rules, so rules like the Dodd-Frank Act, um, they're really important parts of the solution but that the norms of buyer-supplier relationships um, are also really important. So it's like, it's not just like they passed Dodd-Frank um, and suddenly they won. You know, there's still a lot of fighting that happened after that. And a lot of the success that had been made previously made it possible for you to even conceptualize a rule like that that got passed. So without consumer pressure, I don't think you get the public policy and it's not as meaningful a win. And I'd like as well, it's important to note that like the challenge of conflict minerals actually qu requires quite a bit from companies. So like it's not an easy change to make. Um, and that means that you have to do a fair amount of convincing to to really get your goal. So I think that's why the Enough Project focused on emboldening leading companies um, by providing a basis for those companies to differentiate themselves when they're competing with other companies. 
And those companies in turn, when they were recognized as leaders, they might then have been more receptive to taking public stances on upcoming legislation, um, which that in turn then like provides enough with leverage in their public politics. So these leading companies also often made statements where they were sort of patting themselves on the back and that reinforced their status and in doing so reaffirmed what was expected good practice on conflict minerals. So it's sort of like a, a virtuous cycle that got set up there. And those self-congratulatory statements made it easier for enough to claim that progress is possible and that the companies that aren't sort of measuring up are just insufficiently committed, which is a really important argument to be able to combat. So enough appears to have recognized that it'd be really tough to target um, less visible companies. So they focused on consumer electronics and later on the jewelry companies. And I think that's also something that's really important to recognize. It's something that we see a lot in ethical consumption. I don't know. What are your thoughts on the story that you've just heard, Kyla? So is enough still around and they're just focusing on different stuff now? Yeah, they are. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I like that that we get to talk about a story with successes, but I mean, five and a half million people dying in 21 years or 24 years, I guess is what it was, is pretty wild to me. And the fact that, I mean, conflict minerals are still a thing. So, you know, none of this was actually a solution, really. Um, and it took more than 20 years and people are still dying and I think I just yeah. I just wish that there was a way to incentivize companies to cap salaries for the people at the top and spend all of that extra money that they were just giving to five people on <laughs> initiatives that would better the company. I don't know, I like that. I just wish that that was a thing we could do instead of all of this bureaucratic red tape that takes 20 years and Canada still doesn't have anything on the books for it. And it's like... Like, I'm glad that things are being done, but I still don't, like, other than this conversation we're having now, I am not aware of the issues with conflict minerals. I just learned that, like, over 5 million people have died in that very short span of time. Yeah, they're not all linked to conflict minerals, just as a... Okay, good. Like, the war was bloody for different reasons. Okay, few. Uh, I, I think I misunderstood that then. I was like, holy shit! No, no. <laughs> the conflict itself has killed 5.4 million people, and, like... A number of those are connected to the exacerbation of the conflict because you have rebels that ha now have a profit incentive not to make peace. But you're right. Well, and like you said, that night, what like night, over ninety percent of the funding for those groups is coming from this industry. Yeah. So, but I mean, these groups are oftentimes like they're reacting to either they're um, some of them were fleeing Hutus after the um, the Rwandan genocide. Some of them are groups that like, they're like religiously oriented groups. Um, some of them are groups that like, don't like the corruption in the government. Like there's a lot of complicated reason that these groups end up getting set up, but it's just that like, once they're set up, they become like warlords in a lot of cases and it's hard to get rid of them. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I just, I know it's complicated and I know that these groups were doing their best and I like the way that they were going about it. Everything that you said does make sense for the time that we're living in as opposed to breadbasket where it was like, well, we'll just do boycotts and picket lines and stuff like that. And that doesn't really work these days. It's just, I don't know, that was successful and it was easier. Now it's so complicated. You need global 
groups to work together and you need companies to disclose information and they don't want to do that. So I don't know. It's like here in Vancouver, if you want to build a building over a certain height, you also have to, you know, like put up an art project nearby. And that's the that's the thing you pay to to have a building over a certain height. And I just wish that there was something we could do with companies where it's like, oh, you want to earn this much money. You also then have to do this good thing. That's typically what taxes are, Kyla. <laughs> We just don't apply them to a lot of big companies, but yeah. <laughs> I'm like rereading the Forever War right now, and the tax bracket in the Forever War is like 92, percent and I was like, yes, do that <laughs> for for top one percent earners, and just put that money towards good things. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're totally right, but I do think there's something to yes, it was a very, very, very long fight. But the fact that you have this conflict minerals legislation, I think, makes it more possible for you to have modern slavery acts getting passed. Um, and I think it it marks potentially the beginning of a sea change for how we view human rights in um, our globalized economy, that we're we're taking small steps towards recognizing that companies actually do have a lot of power and that we should be requiring them to be ethical and to like look into shit, do your homework, you know, make yeah. sure you're not sourcing from a conflict zone. That's true. Make sure you're not supporting forced labor. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that's true. It's just, I guess, I hope that that progress continues and we don't start to take huge backward steps as climate change starts to rattle the world in a really violent way. Because in the last two years in particular, we've been really seeing the effects of climate change like very starkly. Last year, I think, is the year that it really became obvious to anyone who wasn't already paying attention. I think 2019, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like in the last two or three years, it's just been it's just been a lot and it's getting worse. And it's actually very interesting because we had a lot of climate speakers come to my elementary school when I was a kid that were like, mm, in the next 30 years, you're going to start really seeing the effects of climate change. And now it's been 20 or 30 years. And I'm like, oh, these guys were very prescient. And I, at the time, <laughs> was a child. I was like 10 or 11 years old. And I was like, oh, 30 years, that's so far from now. The grownups will have sorted it out by now because it's so obvious like that that's going to be a problem. And it's within our lifetimes. And it's such a huge issue that needs to be fixed immediately that why wouldn't they solve it? And now here we are. So I guess I'm just stressed out that all of these things that we're talking about, like the conflict minerals, I'm just and like the fact that that's caused by so many different tiny intricate issues that are very complex that work together you throw climate change into that too and i'm just like oh please don't let us go backwards maybe it's donald trump and 4 years of that presidency that just really terrified me you know <laughs> where it's like all of this progress can be undone in a moment yeah although so i'll say two things one is that um climate change also i think I think in some cases it's going to get worse. In a lot of cases it's going to get worse, but it's also stretching what governments feel their role should be, right? You can take a as a really good example, the EU just um, announced the most ambitious climate package that exists. Um, and one of the things that they're considering as a way to implement it is um, putting tariffs on areas where there are not carbon taxes, Um and where, you know, climate change action isn't high enough to sort of level the playing field so that you don't you aren't at a financial disadvantage if you're 
an ecologically responsible company. And that's something that I remember it got brought up, I think one of the Canadian political parties brought it up and like the conservatives jumped all over it as though it was this crazy idea. But now it's starting to look as though it's just smart policy, you know? And I think it's, it's important to recognize, like, that's a change. That's a good change. Um, it's not as fast as it needs to be, but it's a good change. I don't remember what my second thing is, so you talk again. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That What you were just saying actually reminds me of a TikTok video that I saw the other day that I will send to you, where Tucker Carlson... Oh, the Tucker Carlson, like, socialism thing? Yeah, yeah, where he, he goes on a rant about why should the taxpayer have to pay for the the problems that are being caused by big companies, why not make them pay? And it was like, whoa, Tucker finally gets it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so maybe maybe I should just hope that all of the right-wingers and fascists and people who, like libertarians and people who believe in the the free arm of capitalism, maybe eventually they'll start to see that that doesn't work just because it's obviously not working. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think like, we kind of have policy in eras. You know what I mean? Like, there will be an overarching narrative that we're society responds to. And our policies all get sort of framed in relation to what's reasonable for this narrative. So right now, the narrative is like, we like free markets. Gross. That's why all social <laughs> policy seems to be run through tax credits for some reason. I don't understand. Um, but like, <laughs> You know, previous eras, there was the whole, like, um, stagflation crisis, and it all became about, like, minimizing inflation, and that's starting to change. And um, you have, like, a bunch of people that um, are talking after the Second World War, where their big concern is autocracy, quite reasonably. <laughs> like, so, like, that becomes the narrative everything's framed in. And so, like, I think we've had a pandemic. We're still having a pandemic. It's I get my second shot this week. Oh, Nice. So yeah, we've got pandemic that's, it's still going to be complicated, but it's like kind of starting to end, um, but it's going to change people's mindsets for ages. We're not even sure quite how yet. And we've got climate change and we know that's going to be with us increasingly. And I just think as like our practical problems from those two big events, um, they're going to be different. And I don't think neoliberalism is going to handle them very well. Um, we've already seen that with climate change. And so that opens up all kinds of possibilities for what policy could look like, I think, in my naive moments. <laughs> okay. No, I like that. I I want to hope for the best. I am trying to make the right choices in my own life. And I know most of the people that I speak to are trying to do the same. So yeah, this conflict minerals thing is 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 a positive thing to talk about. And I'm sorry for bringing us down, listeners, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just wish that it could be more faster. Maybe I'm greedy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's totally fair. It was super slow and it's not even really solved. But on the other hand, like that's a fucking complicated problem. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so everybody go buy a Fairphone the next time you have to buy an electronics and then live like a luddite for everything else. <laughs> well, or more importantly, like call on your members of parliament to pass things like the modern slavery act uh yeah you know in canada get let's get that tabled again yeah yeah go to a climate march those have got to be starting soon <laughs> they're usually yeah. in september right <laughs> yeah now now i have my second shot so i can go again <laughs> nice fully vaxxed or as we say in canada double doubled <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, cool. Well, I think we're about ready to wind this one down. If anyone wants to connect with us on Twitter, we are at Pullback Podcast. I've gotten into TikTok recently, so I might start making TikTok videos. I don't know. If that's something you guys want, add us on Twitter, the one place where we generally hang out and (laughs) make that happen. (laughs) Love it. Amazing. Well, thank you for listening, folks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.